Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that um, the Bible isn't just a textbook, um, but the scriptures are, they really uh, do expose us to who you are. Lord, they do really do reveal to us the fullness of your character. Um, and simultaneously, Lord, we know that the scriptures reveal um, uh, both our glory and our ruin. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would uh, take uh, this text, Esther 6 and 7, and Lord, make it um, uh, really existentially true in our own hearts and apply it in ways um, that can only be applied by someone who knows us and knows us deeply, that being the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, do this work among, among us these next few minutes. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, we love rags to riches stories, don't we? I mean, if you really like counted up the movies that you last fifty movies you've watched, I, I've got a, a funny feeling that ten to twenty of them are really rags and riches stories. Uh, I mean, there's some really famous ones out there, like Trading Places. Anybody seen Trading Places? That Eddie Murphy flick. I mean, it's a great one. Um, I don't know if you'll ever hear a preacher tell you to watch Trading Places, but um, I loved it. Um, Aladdin. We got any Aladdin people out there? Um, great Gatsby, uh, Slumdog Millionaire, Willy Wonka. Uh, and perhaps my personal favorite, the Beverly Hillbillies, really are rags uh, to riches stories. Um, that's really the, the plot line that's, that's playing itself out. We, we really love it because I think what it does is that it connects us with our own desire, our own hope that we can either work our way out of a future with no hope or we can fall into it by chance. I mean, that's really the Beverly Hillbillies with oil, right? Uh, it's by chance they go from rags to riches. They didn't work very hard at all. Um, but then we have, we, but we really love it the other way too. We love riches to rags stories. That's kind of dark, I know, but it is true. Uh, last Sunday, um, I had the privilege of preaching at um, a church in our denomination. It's in Elizabethtown, so I had an hour and a half drive there, an hour and a half drive home, and I was by myself. Uh, and honestly, it was glorious. Three hours by myself was great, and. Um, in that three hours, I listen. I, I don't. I'm not. I don't listen to a lot of audio podcasts that people are always asking me. And I'm like, man, I just don't have time. I, I don't. I don't sit in my car that often. And, but here I did, and I listened to this podcast from Thirty for Thirty on a guy named Donald Sterling. Uh, Donald Sterling uh, owned the L.A. Clippers uh, for uh, let's see, twenty three years, and um, and he was known throughout the NBA. Anybody ever played for him? All the other owners, everybody knows that he was a real scumbag. And um, finally, he got busted in 2014 uh, for ma- making racial comments, and um, it ended up that he uh, lost his team, and it was sold uh, to Steve Ballmer for $2 billion, and it was stripped out from under him. Now, this was four and a half hours of audio content. I'm three hours into it, and I couldn't wait to get the next hour and a half in at some point uh, Sunday afternoon and Monday, and I finally finished it out. And I really noticed within me, why did I like that so much? I mean, it's really depressing. And I think the truth is, I, we all do, I may be, or perhaps it is just me, I can be honest about that, that we, that, that we love these, um, these riches to rag stories because it makes us feel better about the people. It makes us feel better about ourselves because someone else has failed and failed miserably. It makes us feel good because justice can indeed be served, could be another reason. But if you go to the scriptures, you begin to scan them to see if you can find a riches to rags or a rags to riches story, you, you might have a hard time, at least in a material sense. Uh, but there, is, there are stories about how God makes a way when there seems to be no way. 
You've got Sarah. God somehow makes a 90-year-old barren woman pregnant, and she gives birth. You've got Moses. Moses, uh, being a baby, was ordered to be slaughtered because all Hebrew boys who were born were ordered to be slaughtered. But instead, his mother keeps him uh, hidden, eventually puts him into a basket and floats him down the river where he just so happens to be found by Pharaoh's daughter and he gets raised in the palace. Really, from rags to riches. Uh, you've, got, you've got the shepherd boys made king and David. But it goes the other way too. Uh, kind of fantastically goes the other way when we go from riches to rags. You've got uh, King Herod in Acts 12. Uh, that he's being called the divine uh, by his people. And he's absorbing this to his great delight when all of a sudden he's eaten alive by worms. You've got King Jehoram. Uh, King Jehoram was a Jewish king. He was cruel. And he died uh, when his bowels burst out and no one honored him in death. King Jehoram. You've got King Ahab, Queen Jezebel, and there, uh, I didn't know this, but, this, but I just found this out this week, that King, Queen Jezebel and King Ahab, who I'd heard of, I didn't know how they died, but they, they died because they were eaten by dogs. Now notice, all these people, they were royal, and they were rich, and they experienced death in the most humiliating of fashion. So really, riches to rags. But why? Well, why are some exalted and some are brought low? What's the cost? What's the difference between Jezebel and Sarah? Well, usually we boil it down to someone's living right. Uh, I mean, don't, I, I, don't you love that saying when someone says, oh yeah, something really good happened to me, and they said, must be living right. Is the reason because someone's living right and someone's living wrong? And maybe that's why you're here tonight. You want God to catch you living right, so that'll bless you. Or maybe you know you've not been living right and you're trying to right the ship so that God doesn't curse you and so you're here. And even more so than that, our own hearts want to believe that this is the way the world works. In fact, this is the way God works. Our church comes right alongside our hearts, right alongside the world, and it tells us that if we have enough faith, if we claim blessings, then God's going to give you what you want. But what if God doesn't work that way? How can a, a man or a, a woman become someone with whom God delights? Well, Esther 6 and 7 kind of shine uh, some light on this whole theme. In the course of these two chapters, uh, you're going to see both a rags to riches story and a riches to rags story. Uh, so let's read, we'll read uh, chapter 6, we'll read 1 to 11, and chapter 7, we'll just read 7 to 10. Follow along with us. Verse 1, chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, 
whom should the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes, and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Verse 7 of chapter 7. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. The word of the Lord. I don't know if you think the Bible is G, uh, rated G, but it clearly uh, is not, uh, as we read tonight. But if you're, if you're just now joining us or you've only been with us uh, a couple of the past five weeks, let me summarize Esther uh, 1 to 5 for us because uh, this is an extremely intricate plot with lots of little details that really matter for the outcome of the story. Uh, when you start the book, uh, you have uh, the Jews uh, who are addressed in, in, in Esther. It's predominantly Esther and Mordecai. Uh, they're the Jews who are addressed in the book, and they're living in Persia. They're not living uh, anywhere near Jerusalem. They have been, uh, the Jews have been uh, captured by Babylon, hauled off uh, to Babylon, and then Babylon was conquered by Persia. And so the Jews who are in Persia at the time of Esther, they've been there for generations, and they've assimilated very well into the culture to the point that it's really hard to even tell that they're Jews. And the king who's, uh, who's on the throne during the time of Esther's is named Xerxes. Uh, Xerxes uh, is quite the character. Um, he is very power hungry. He really wants to take over uh, the other empire of the day, Greece. And he's trying to do so by really, uh, by, by really playing the game of politics. He's, he's trying to win the favor of that next level of leadership throughout the empire. There's 127 provinces in the empire. And so he calls all these 127 um, uh, leaders, governors of those provinces to Susa. Susa is the capital. He throws a huge party just for them for six months. A six-month party. And at the end of those six months, uh, he uh, calls in his queen, Queen Vashti. And he says to Queen Vashti, he said, I I want you to come before me. And Vashti would not do it. She did not want to be, um, she would not want to be objectified sexually in the way that she was going to if she would have come in. So she, uh, she refused. 
Xerxes, in his anger, took the queen title from her and banished her for life. And after a while, he gets lonely. And he gets lonely, so he wants to choose a new queen. He doesn't look at the other noble families there in Susa. Instead, he, has, uh, he, he wants to recruit his own queen. So he, um, he calls for all the beautiful virgins in his, uh, in his empire to come uh, to Susa and be in the palace. They, they're going to undergo a year of preparation to spend one night with the king. And after the king has uh, done this with all of the beautiful young virgins who have been brought into the palace, he's going to choose one. And the one he chose was Esther. Now, Esther, what is unique about Esther is that Esther, as I mentioned, is a Jew. Mordecai had raised her as, as, as a father would, but he was just really uh, her older cousin. And Mordecai told her uh, before she became queen, said, hey, it's really important. Do not say that you're a Jew to anyone in the palace. You might be endangered. So she uh, is in uh, in the palace as queen doing her thing. And one day Mordecai uh, is um, he overhears that two uh, of the king's advisors want to overthrow. They not just overthrow him, but they want to assassinate him. So he hears this plan. He's got this inside connection with Esther. And so he goes to Esther and says, hey, the, the, these two men want to king, kill Xerxes. So you might want to tell Xerxes. So she does. She tells Xerxes. And when she tells Xerxes, Xerxes executes those two guys. It seems like it's forgotten, but it's not. And that's what we pick up on in chapter 6. But now the king is really insecure. He's really afraid that, 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 that more of his advisors are going to turn on him. So he's going to consolidate all of his advisors uh, into one. And he consolidates it into this one figure, Haman. And Haman loves having all the power. Loves it. Absolutely loves having all the power. And because he has all the power, all the people in Persia are supposed to bow down to him. Mordecai wakes up to the fact that this is, there's something very wrong about this. So he doesn't bow down to Mordecai, or doesn't bow down to Haman when he sees him out in public. This infuriates Haman. And Haman says, not just, hey, you, Mordecai, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be executed, but really all the Jews, all the Jews in the Persian Empire are going to be executed. Mordecai, you, you know, obviously he mourns over this, mourns over losing his own life, mourns over, I mean, what's going to happen to God's promises that are going to happen? Are they going to go unfulfilled now that all the Jews here in Persia are going to be executed? And so he thinks up this plan. Oh, yeah, the queen, she's a Jew. My younger cousin, who I'm like her father, so he goes to her and he says, hey, maybe you've been put in this position for such a time as this. Maybe it's time for you to leverage the power you have on behalf of God's people. And Esther agrees to do so. And then now we're at chapter 6. Verse 1, and you see it, and it seems like an insignificant point in the narrative. I mean, what, what, what's the big deal about the king not being able to sleep? But it's really significant because, really, this is at the very center of the plot line. See, at the beginning, you had two feasts. One was just for the, uh, the 127 leaders of those provinces, followed by a, a feast that was for, um, that was for, all, uh, for all the people who lived in Susa. They have been back-to-back. They're consecutive. And then you get to the end of the book, and you'll see... Two feasts that are back-to-back. They're consecutive. And there in the middle, there are two feasts. Queen Esther throws these feasts. They're for Haman and Xerxes. One has already taken place by the time we get to chapter 6, verse 1. The other one happens at the beginning of chapter 7. So you've got two feasts, two feasts, one, one, and you've got the sleepless night right in between. And what the author is trying to do is to use this literary tool to show us, the reader, 
that this is the hinge on which the whole narrative turns. A sleepless night. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of sleepless nights. And th- this week, uh, Robert, uh, the pastor of Taste Creek, he showed me this verse, Psalm 56, verse 8. says that the Lord counts all of our tossings, meaning all the tossings in our sleep. And I was like, that's good news. I've got a lot of those. And so really, a, 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 a sleepless night for many of us is really common. Yet this is the event that God is using to save his people. Common. I mean, what about the drama? I mean, the Red Sea, parting the Red Sea, that's what salvation's all about. The walls of Jericho falling down. I mean, that kind of drama. That's what salvation's really all about. It's about Goliath pushing down the pillar on which the whole building stood to revenge what they had done to God's people. That's what salvation's all about. It's the drama. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's not the drama. Maybe it's not the pizzazz. Maybe it's these ordinary things like one person not sleeping that brings about the salvation of his people. See, really, any deity worth uh, his or her salt can do a miracle now and then, but our God, the God of the Scriptures, He's so great, He's so powerful, that He can work out miracles through the ordinary events of human life. Think about your own life. Think about the circumstances that led up to your conversion. See, God just so happened to put you in a family where Christ was present as opposed to another family. It just so happened that way. God just so happened put a campus minister in your life. God just so happened to have your whole life crash down when you had a coworker or neighbor who displayed Christ to you in a way that you never had seen and you had to inquire where this peace, where this joy, and where this love came from. And that's how you were converted. I know it seems random, but it really isn't. See, God is always going before us. He's orchestrating every event to bring about his plan of redemption. Ordinary things, a sleepless night. Where God doesn't seem present. Where God isn't even named in this book. That's the hinge on which it turns. What's a seemingly ordinary event in your life? that God used to bring about his purposes for you. You take chapter 6, you take chapter 7, and you have these snapshots. You've got the snapshot of Mordecai, the rags-to-riches guy, the guy that went from uh, being uh, on the front page of the newspaper as uh, really the symbol of what it means to be accursed. You know, he's sitting there and his, uh, he's got his, his sackcloth on. He's got his ashes going. He knows, he's getting, he knows he's getting ready to die. And they said, the accursed man on front of the paper. Just a few weeks later, now he's on the front page of the paper wearing the king's crown and the king's robe on his horse with a whole company of people saying, this is what happens to the person with whom the king delights. That's riches to rags. And you've got the, you, 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 you've got the, um, 
You've got to go on the other way too, don't you? You've got Haman. He was on the front page of the paper for being the big dog. All the king's power has been consolidated into him. And he experiences this huge downfall where he dies on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. And all of this started with Xerxes having a sleepless night. And when he has this sleepless night, he orders to have this book of memorable deeds read to him. And I don't know what was ailing him that night, but I think what he thought was, if, 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 if someone would just read to me all the great things I've done or all the great things that people have done for me, then maybe I'll be able to fall asleep. You know, for me and you, we go to our iPhones, but he went to this memorable book of deeds. Might be healthier. Um, and uh, so, anyhow, so he, he has this read to him, and as it's being read to him, he hears about this deed that's been done to him that's, that someone has gone unrewarded for. That this guy Mordecai has saved his life. Back in the day where Mordecai heard the story of the two guys who were going to assassinate him, and he said, hey, what's been done for him? And at the very moment that he asked the question, what's been done for him, uh, Haman is sitting right out in his outer court, and Haman is wanting to come in to tell Xerxes, I need you to get permission for me to hang this guy Mordecai on the gallows. So when he walks in, before he can ask his, before Haman asks a question, Xerxes asks a question and says, hey, Haman, what should I do? What should I do for the man with whom I delight? And so you see Haman give out this huge answer of all the things that are to be done for him. And Xerxes says, that's a great plan, Haman. Do that for Mordecai. Now picture what Mordecai is doing when this conversation he doesn't know is taking place. Imagine him. He's probably out in the streets or maybe he's in his flat, apartment, whatever you want to call it. And and he's probably still garbed in sackcloth and ashes. He's likely got a lot going on in his own soul. He's wondering, has the king uh, forgot about me? I mean, I, I, I saved his neck not that long ago and I've not even gotten a thank you card. He's probably wondering uh, how Esther's attempt at mediating for the Jews is going to go. He's probably thinking, hey, Haman built those 75-foot gallows I can see from my window, and I bet you he built them for me. I mean, he's got a lot going on, doesn't he? he? He's fearful. He's expectant. He's discouraged. And amidst of this, these plethora of emotions that he's experienced he experiences, Haman shows up. Haman shows up at his door, knocks on it. And when Haman knocks on his door, he's got a crown. He's got a robe. He's got an entourage. And he's got this horse. You have to think about the confusion that Mordecai is feeling at this moment. You've got to think, man, this is it. This, This is the last moment of my life. I'm about ready to say my last words. But instead... Haman puts Mordecai up on that horse and rides him throughout the city. Now that's a rags to riches story of the highest order. But then you've got Haman's riches to rags story. And if you read the narrative, you begin to ask the question, uh, who's responsible? Is Haman responsible or is God responsible? Because this is an epic downfall. Well, on the one hand, he's responsible. He's the one who trips over his own pride when he thinks that he's the one with whom the king delights. He's the one who's built these gallows for Mordecai only to be hung on them himself. 
He's the one with this overinflated view of himself that ultimately leads to his destruction. And that's exactly what pride does. Pride is the absorption of self. C.S. Lewis says that pride is ruthless, is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. See, what pride does is it makes you a fool. Everyone else is laughing at your pride, just like they were Haman, except for you. And what pride does is it keeps you from learning from your mistakes. Because what pride's always doing is that it's blaming other people and it's blaming circumstances for the unpleasantness in one's life. Pride also keeps you from learning from criticism. In fact, if if you receive criticism and you're prideful, you're either going to dismiss it, you're going to attack the person who gave you criticism, or you're going to shrink back from it and not change. And all of those responses will keep you from growing. But here's the really tough thing about pride. Pride hides. It's really hard to detect. Uh, it's what uh, Keller calls the carbon monoxide of sin. See, w- w- when you're committing adultery, you know it, right? I don't want to put that picture in your mind too much in the middle of a sermon. But when, you, when you're committing adultery, you know it. It's very, very, very provable. If you're embezzling money and $50,000 ends up in your bank account, you know you embezzled money. But then there's pride. It's, it's, it, pride is everywhere, but you can't smell it. For instance, if you're angry at someone, it's because you feel superior to them. You know what that's called? Pride. If, you're, if you worry, it's because you know exactly how things ought to go. You know what that is, don't you? That's pride. And what the scriptures teach is that pride comes before a fall. And so when we see Haman take this fall, he gets exactly what's coming to him. So Haman's fall is indeed his fault. Now, I'm going to say that out of one side of my mouth. And on the other side of my mouth, I'm going to say that, the, that this story really is about a God who's sovereign over all events from sleepless nights to Esther being queen, to Mordecai overhearing the plot to kill the king, and yes, God is even sovereign over Haman's self-destructive power. And he's leveraging all of those to redeem his people. So to put it another way, or to put it in uh, John Calvin's words, he says this, Man falls according as God's providence ordains, but he falls by his own fault. See, God's sovereignly orchestrating this great reversal of fortunes that sends echoes forth to a greater cosmic reversal of fortunes. See, we're the ones who are like Haman, aren't we? We're the ones who, we've hung ourselves by our own pride. We were deceived. We worshiped the creator, the created over the creator. 
We claim to be wise. We were futile in our thinking. We have foolish hearts that are darkened. But then something happened. Jesus switched places with us. See, Mordecai was saved because Haman switched places with him involuntarily. Jesus, on the other hand, he switched places with us voluntarily. He went from rags to riches. We went from rags to riches because Jesus went from riches to rags. Jesus was the king who was stripped naked on the cross so that he could cover up our nakedness with his royal robes. So you see what happens when the king loves you? changes you. We, we all want to be loved, not, not, not just by anyone. We, we want to be loved by someone great. We want the praise of the praiseworthy. And then to the degree that you hear, that you experience, and that you see the love of King Jesus for you will be the degree to which you can acknowledge and repent of your pride. And to the degree that you hear, that you experience, and that you see the love of King Jesus for you will be the degree that you can trust that God can use the mundane things like sleepless nights and that God can use evil things like Haman's wicked edict to work out his purposes in the world and in your life. So do you see this great reversal of fortunes? Do you see how Esther 6 and 7 really have everything to do with me and you? They really do point us to Jesus, King Jesus, who's willing to maybe whisper and maybe scream, but for sure demonstrate his love for you on an evil Roman cross. May that be personal to you tonight. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are a God who takes common things uh, to work out your purposes. So, Lord, for all of us, what, what we're dealing with is, uh, is we just don't have the money to pay the bills this month. Lord, we know you're in control. Lord, it, those of us who uh, a relationship has gone awry and we just don't know what to do with it, Lord, that we can trust you. Uh, Lord, would you strip us of our pride? Would you make us a church that is, uh, that is deeply, deeply humble, a church that is uh, trigger-happy, not to be self-justifying, not to rationalize, but, uh, Lord, a church that is trigger-happy to repent. Lord, do this. Uh, do this for your glory, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.